2: Happy Saturday, everyone. Coming up next week on the podcast, we have a two-parter on Sojourner Truth. And one of the things that we are going to talk about is the background of her most famous speech and questions about how accurate the most well-known version of it is. That is the speech that is known today as Ain't I a Woman?
0: And along the way in that two-parter, we mentioned parallels to a similarly famous speech attributed to Chief Seattle. And we talked about that back in March of 2013 in one of the very first episodes that the two of us did together on the show. So this seems like a good time to revisit it.
2: Also, this is a really great example of how much we have learned and how much we have forgotten since we started working on this show. Like, <laughs> for example, we talk about a cooking technique of using heated rocks inside baskets, and that came up again in Unearthed in July, 2017.
0: And by that point, it sounds as though we've never heard of such a thing. Well, by the time my brain pushed it out, it's like I never heard of it, so it's fine. Me too. <laughs> so
1: enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We are going to talk today about something you may have learned about in school that you may have learned about wrongly, and that is Chief Seattle in a very famous oration that he made, allegedly, in 1854. Except... Except probably not. The reality is a little different from what people are usually taught. Very true. So Chief Seattle really was a real person. He was chief of the Suquamish and other related tribes around the area now known as Seattle through the mid-1800s when settlers uh, were moving into the area. And what many people remember him for, in addition to the city of Seattle being named after him, is a speech that he gave, although many versions of the speech... That circulate are absolutely not by him at all. We will talk a little bit more about that in just a bit.
0: So, for a little bit of background uh, about the Suquamish people, Suquamish, which is an Americanized pronunciation of their name, uh, actually means a place of clear salt water.
2: And that they and other nearby tribes were primarily fishers, hunters, and gatherers. Uh, at the time before American settlement of that part of the world, they lived in cedar plank longhouses in the winter. And then in the rest of the year, they would travel around using dugout cedar canoes and stay in temporary camps that were made of structures made from tree sap- saplings that were covered with mats made of woven cattail.
0: And they also were really well-known for making these hard, watertight baskets from coiled cedar roots. And they could actually use these baskets for cooking. They would heat rocks up in the fire and drop them into liquid-filled baskets to create a very heated water source. Yes. uh, Which they could then drop other things into and cook them.
2: Yes. This is a tribe that still exists today. It has about 950 members, and about half of those members live on a reservation uh, up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, the most notable, famous person from this tribe is, is Chief Seattle, and that also is an Americanized pronunciation. Uh, like many non-English names, it includes characters and phonemes that don't exist in English. Um, an approximation of the actual pronunciation of it is Seat, uh, and we don't really end words with t in that way. Uh, and so it, it sort of gradually became softened to Seattle. Uh, According to the Suquamish Foundation, the tribe doesn't really object to him being called Seattle, although he did himself have some misgivings about the city being named for him at various points in his life. Uh, He's sort of worried that because of the importance of names in his culture, that having people repeatedly use his name in a context that was not about him in kind of a casual, possibly dismissive way. Uh, might cause problems after he was gone. But before his death, reportedly, he had come to think of it as a mark of honor.
0: Now, we don't know a whole lot about Seattle's uh, early years because he doesn't really appear in the historical record until he's an adult.
2: Right. There there are a, a few official uh, and tribal records from various points in his life. A lot of the earliest part, you have really a lot of different sources that contradict each other. Even when you look at tribal sources, some of them contradict each other. Uh, by his own account, he was born on Blake Island in central Puget Sound, and his mother was named Sholitza. She was a Duwamish woman from Green River, and his father was Shuiabe from the Suquamish village in Agate Pass. So he had uh, a mother who was Duwamish and a father who was Suquamish, uh, and so his, his bloodline sort of united those two tribes. Um, When he was born, it was a time when huge amounts of illness were spreading through the Native American population. About 30% of the population in that area died within 80 years after first contact with the white settlers because of introduced diseases.
0: And by Seattle's own account, he witnessed the first contact between the Pacific Northwest and settlers when George Vancouver reached Bainbridge Island in 1792 in the HMS discovery.
2: Yes. Yes. Uh, Seattle had two important events that led to his becoming chief. The first was that he went on a vision quest for spirit power as a youth, and he received Thunderbird power. Um, Thunder and lightning had a really strong spiritual significance, and thunder power was said to give uh, a person power as a warrior and a speaker. There are accounts of Seattle saying that he had a great booming voice, and that if he yelled at you, the ground would physically tremble. Uh, and that when he gave speeches, he could be heard like half a mile away. Like There was a lot tied to him, this idea of sp- voice and speech and very powerful speech.
0: And the second other thing that is an important part of the the story of him becoming chief is that while defending a settlement from raiders traveling down the White River, he had warriors chop down trees just downriver of a particularly dangerous bend. And the incoming raiders' canoes crashed and they couldn't get through, so their their riders were spilled into the water. And it's... Fairly easy to defend yourself against people who are floundering in the water. Yes. Versus e- coming at you rapidly on boats. Right.
2: The incoming raiders were handily dispatched when they came around this like treacherous curve and crashed into a tree, which is pretty ingenious. Right. Word spread of that. He was named to be an important chief uh, and he became known in his leadership as an intelligent and formidable leader. Uh, There are several sources that say that he owned slaves who he either freed after signing treaties with the settlers or after the Emancipation Proclamation. Their sources kind of contradict each other on when he's freed the slaves that belonged to him. But owning slaves is a pretty common practice in many tribes. Often people from the opposing tribe would kind of be spoils of war and would become uh, the slaves of the conquering tribe.
0: Which is pretty common throughout all history and yeah. many cultures.
2: Yeah, I think I think some people have the mistaken idea, identi- idea uh, that there's only one culture that en- enslaved other people. And there are many cultures that have enslaved other people.
0: But on his wives. So his first wife, Lidelia, he was really quite deeply in love with. Uh, and she died shortly after giving birth to their first child, Kiki Soblu. Uh, who was also known to the settlers as Princess Angeline. Yes,
2: she's a notable historical figure in that area uh, area as well. Um, Seattle was really grief-stricken when his wife died, and he only talked about her openly much, much later in his later years. Uh, he got married again to, uh, and I, I'm going to have trouble with this pronunciation, um, Yoyal, uh, and they had two daughters and three sons together.
0: Now, an interesting part of his story is that he was actually baptized into the Catholic Church. Uh, I think sometimes it's easy to forget that there really was some blending of culture going on. Right. Uh, And after the death of one of his sons was when he was baptized, and he took the name Noah Seattle at that time. And his children were raised in the Catholic faith. Uh, And after Seattle's conversion, he focused less on defending and occupying his territory and more on building peaceful relations Uh, within the tribe and with the settlers that were coming in.
2: Right. Uh, The American settlers had gotten to the uh, Puget Sound area around 1846. And Seattle established himself from the very start as a welcoming and peaceful presence. He tended to make friends with settlers. He instructed the people in his tribes to try to help people. They uh, established fisheries in conjunction Uh, with the settlers. And in particular, he was very close friends with a man named Dr. David S. Maynard, who was known as Doc. Uh, Doc Maynard was the first doctor and merchant in Seattle, um, and he was a prominent person. He owned most of the land that is Pioneer Square in Seattle today.
0: And the settlement that actually became known as Seattle was established in 1852, which is just six short years after the Uh, American settlers landed in the Puget Sound area. So in March of 1853, Washington was separated out from the Oregon Territory. And in October, Governor Isaac Stevens, who was 35 at the time, arrived in Olympia, the capital of Washington. In addition to being governor of the territory, he was also the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Yes. And one of his
2: jobs as the governor uh, and as the Commissioner for Indian Affairs was to secure land for the Transcontinental Railroad uh, and that was going to require the local tribes to cede their land to him. So it's in this context that Seattle has met Stevens for the first time, and Stevens wants to secure the land, that Chief Seattle reportedly gave a speech. Uh, allegedly, this was delivered to Stevens, or in the presence of him, on the steps of Doc Maynard's office, uh, after he was introduced to Stevens and heard that Stevens wanted to to get the local land from the native population. Um, According to what has been reported, this happened on Stevens' first visit into the town, but that's a little hard to concretely verify uh, because we only have a few situations in that the history of the area when we know that Seattle and Stevens were in the same place at the same time. So there's been a lot of speculation about when exactly this speech may have taken place.
0: And it... In many of the accounts where it happened very um, almost immediately after they met, it's a little bit tricky to get your head around the idea of this great speech being made pretty quickly after like a handshake and a quick discussion.
2: Right there. There. Yeah. We'll talk about that as we talk about the the text of the speech a little bit. Uh, this is a speech that some people may have read in school. Uh, what they read in school may not have been remotely accurate. And here's why. Um, the first speech was purportedly recorded by a Dr. Henry Smith as notes uh, as the address was was delivered. Um, he then reconstructed that uh, speech from his notes and published it in the Seattle Sunday Star in 1887. So it was 32 or 33 years after it was reportedly delivered. Um, occasionally people say that this speech was made at the signing of the Point Elliott Treaty. We know for sure this is not the case because, uh, Smith says pretty specifically this happened in Seattle on the steps of Doc Maynard's office. That is not where the Point
0: Elliott Treaty was signed. And Smith was also not present at Point Elliott, so he would have not been able to make notes. no. (laughs)
2: Uh, The second version is basically an edited, rewritten version of Smith's uh, that was published in the Seattle Sunday Star, which was done by a poet named William Aerosmith. This is the same content, but the grammar and structure are different. So it's sort of like updating the Victorian English uh, record to be a little bit more modernized in its tone and voice.
0: And then the third and most famous iteration of the speech that's attributed to Chief Seattle is reported to be a letter that Chief Seattle wrote to the president, which would have been either Polk or Pierce, depending on who you're looking at in terms of who cites this speech. But it was actually written, not at all by Seattle. It was written so much later.
2: 1970s, uh, by a guy named Ted Perry for an environmental film called Home, which was written for the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, It's, this is where it just, this is, A lot of people really dwell on the speech and whether it was authentic. Uh, It pretty clearly was not. Uh, But this speech has been quoted in numerous anthologies. It was made into a children's book called Brother Eagle, Sister Sky. Joseph Campbell talked about it in The Power of Myth. Uh, It's like made it Onto bumper stickers and T-shirts all over the place. It took on a life of its own. It really did, and it sort of starts with this uh, this thing that was published in the Seattle Sunday Star. It starts with some similarities to that, and then it veers off in a very environmental direction with very bumper sticker quotable quotes in it. Um, we know for sure that this was not a letter to the president. Um, In addition to the fact that James K. Polk was dead in 1854, there's not any record of any such letter going from Seattle to the president. Uh, And a letter from a Native American chief to the president would have made several bureaucratic stops on the way, and there's no record of it in any of those places. There's also no record of uh, Chief Seattle asking anyone to write a letter for him. Uh, And since he was illiterate, he would have needed to do that. And then the cherry on top... Ted Perry
0: wrote it. (laughs) And he says he wrote it. He says he he wrote it. He acknowledges authorship of it. Right.
2: Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news.
0: Yeah, I am wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm. And it's not a calm situation at all.
0: you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So I'm going to take a minute and just sort of read a little snippet of the Seattle Sunday Star version and the Ted Perry version. And there's a twofold purpose here. One is to give you an idea of the tone of the speech that was allegedly given originally. And the other is to give you an idea of how completely different from that the the Ted Perry version is. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit more about the Sunday Star version in a minute. So uh, this is a snippet from the Seattle Sunday Star version. Chief Seattle says, Your God is not our God. Your God loves your people and hates mine. He folds his strong, protecting arms lovingly about the pale face and leads him by the hand as a father leads an infant son. But he has forsaken his red children, if they are really his. Our God, the Great Spirit, seems also to have forsaken us. Your God makes your people wax stronger every day. Soon they will fill all the land. Our people are ebbing away like a rapidly receding tide that will never return. The white man's God cannot love our people, or he would protect them. They seem to be orphans who can look nowhere for help. How then can we be brothers? It's very sad.
0: It is, but it's also very weird when you remember that he was a Catholic.
2: Yes, it's it's weird with a lot of context that we'll talk yeah. about in more detail. Um, the the whole of it has been categorized into this idea of of a farewell speech. There are several speeches delivered by Native Americans within that era that that sort of lament the death of Native American culture in the face of white settlement. Um, another really famous one would be uh, Chief uh, Chief Joseph gave such an address. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about why that interpretation of this is kind of problematic uh, in a few minutes. But here's a piece of the Ted Perry version, uh, and it it does start off following some similar points to what I just read, but then it it goes into this environmental direction with things like, you must teach your children that the ground beneath their feet is the ashes of our grandfathers, so that they will respect the land. Tell your children that the earth is rich with the lives of our kin. Teach your children that what we will have taught our children, that the earth is our mother. Whatever befalls the earth, befalls the sons of the earth. If men spit upon the ground, they spit upon themselves. This we know. The earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. This we know. All things are connected like the blood which unites one family. All things are connected. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons of the earth. Man did not weave the web of life. He is merely a strand in it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. That has two bits of it that uh, often show up on t-shirts and bumper stickers
0: and That kind of thing. Well, and it's easy to see why. I mean, it is very uh, moving and, you know, really... Quotable. Very quotable, sort of poignant from an ecological standpoint, which I think part of the reason that myth grows and, you know, continues this attribution of these words with Chief Seattle is that we normally associate that sort of awareness of the earth and the planet as something bigger than just what we're, you know, sort of running on day to day. We associate that closeness more with Native Americans than we do with the European settlers.
2: Right. It really did take on a weird life of its own. Um, And the reason it's so quotable is because it was written for a film.
0: It was written to be quotable.
2: Yes. So I've read lots of things that kind of dissect all the ways in which that particular version of the address does not make any sense. In the context of the time but we're not going to really get into them because we know the real story already that ted perry wrote it like we don't really need to go and dissect all the ways in which it was not would not make sense for chief seattle to have said something about trains when he never saw a train because we know that ted perry wrote it so for the really the rest of this podcast the the version of the address that we're talking about is the one that was printed in the seattle sunday star
0: um and was reprinted many times throughout
2: the year. It was reprinted, not not as many times as the ten pairing version, but it, it did get, it got its share of of attention. Um, at various points, that text was reprinted in pamphlets and books and histories and things like that. Uh, at some point along the line, somebody added a thirteen word finish. Um, he he ends with the idea of not to dismiss the dead because the dead are not powerless, uh, and somebody added a sort of thirteen word word coda that says, dead, I say, there is no death, only a change of worlds. And that's not in the original Sunday Star version. So that got added in and then sort of picked up and passed along as it was reprinted. Um, We're going to sort of talk now about how even when we have this text that came from the Seattle Sunday Star, we're still not really sure how authentic it is or how well it actually represents the words that were spoken at the time. And it begins with the guy who wrote it down. Uh, Dr. Henry Smith was a scholar, and sources said that he was bilingual in English and Duwamish. And that is a little weird, because what the Duwamish tribes actually spoke was a language called Lushootseed. and I apologize if I have pronounced that wrongly. Um, any address that Chief Seattle gave would have been made in this language and then translated to the Chinook jargon, which was sort of a common tongue uniting all of the people that lived in the, in that area. Uh, then it would have been translated into into English. We don't really know which of the versions Dr. Smith was listening to when he took his notes. Um, and it is worth noting that the fact that Seattle either didn't speak the jargon or said he didn't speak the jargon, jargon kind of sets him apart from other people in the area. Like, that's kind of a weird decision to make, to say, I, I just, I don't speak this common tongue. I lead all of these tribes who speak a language I do not. Right. Um, but that meant that he had to have an interpreter everywhere, which sort of, became a mark of status. Like, if we are going to entertain this this diplomat from these tribes, we are going to need to make sure that we do this thing of getting an interpreter for him. So we don't really know which of these three versions that were probably being delivered was the one that Dr. Smith took his notes from.
0: And we do know, I mean, he is a fairly reliable figure in that he was a superintendent of local schools. He was a member of the legislature. So it's not like he was just a, um, a self-proclaimed scholar who swooped in and claimed to understand these things. He really was pretty ingrained in the area. Um, you know, he wasn't just a, a someone claiming to be knowledgeable about these things. He was an established part of the community.
2: Right. But the place where it gets a little weird, though, is that the column in the Sunday Star where he published this speech, in addition to it being 32 or 33 years after the fact, was part of an 11-part series that was celebrating the pioneers of Seattle. Um, It was, as we often see generational divides happening, there was this generational divide happening between the people known as the old Seattle, which were the pioneers that had settled the area and established the city, and new Seattle, which was the young um, entrepreneurs who were gradually taking those people's places in society. So the fact that he was trying to Put old Seattle in its best light might have influenced the way Smith reinterpreted and reconstructed his notes when he was making the version that he put in the Seattle Sunday Star.
0: And even his description of Seattle at the address kind of exemplifies this. He describes the chief as putting his hand on the head of a visible nobleman and then taking up a posture that resembles what we think of in ancient roman senators.
2: Yeah, like if if you look at old pictures of people giving orations, like paintings of people giving orations in Rome and they have this very noble bearing and they have sort of a hand lifted up. That's that's the portrait that Smith paints when he's introducing this speech. Um it definitely comes off as prophetic because it talks a lot about the decline of the native american population in the face of white settlers it's possible that the reason that it comes off as prophetic is is because Smith reconstructed it with knowledge of what happened in the next 30 years, which really was an orchestrated attempt by the government in lots of places to push Native Americans out of land and to uh, break up tribes so that their original culture would be uh, less prevalent or or just removed from their way of life. Like, he he knew about all that stuff because it had happened it in had the happened. interim. Right. It had happened in the interim. Another thing that had happened in the interim was the what we mentioned a little earlier, which was Chief Joseph's sort of farewell speech. Uh, that happened in 1877. So it's possible that some of the fatalism in the tone is uh, influenced by Smith's knowledge of what happened later and of the kind of speeches that other Native Americans were making elsewhere in the United States.
0: And additionally, it's... We should note that Seattle already had a reputation for being really friendly and welcoming to the white settlers that were coming long before Governor Stevens' arrival. So, it's pretty uncharacteristic that he would suddenly have this sort of negative, um, very dark speech. Right. It that says, was full of pessimism and warning, and
2: yeah, it's a sense of impending doom. But he had a pretty favorable relationship with a lot of uh, white settlers in the area. So it seems that. He may have been concerned about uh, about land being removed from his tribe, but the overwhelming sense of sadness um, seems possibly not characteristic of of his other encounters with white settlers.
0: And there's also no record of this speech in the Smithsonian. It's not in the National Archives. It's not in the Library of Congress. Yeah, the
2: primary source that we have is something that was written down in note form. In note starting in note form more than, more than 30 years after the fact. We do, though, have, as a reference, two short speeches that Seattle made uh, at the Point Elliott Treaty Council, which was from December 25th to 27th, 1854. Um, and these are from the record of the proceedings in the Bureau of Indian Affairs and in the National Archives. Uh, they are so dissimilar in style and war- wording to the Seattle Sunday Star piece. I, they're so different, I can read you both of them which I am going to do. Um, The first is, I look upon you as my father. I and the rest regard you as such. All of the Indians have the same good feeling toward you, and will send it in paper to the great father. All of the men, old men, women, and children rejoice that he has sent you to take care of them. My mind is like yours. I don't want to say more. My heart is very good towards Dr. Maynard. I want always to get medicine from him. That's thing one. The other is, is presumably after the the treaty was signed. And he says, Now by this we make friends and put away all bad feelings, if ever we had any. We are the friends of the Americans. All the Indians are of the same mind. We look upon you as our father. We will never change our minds, but since you have been to see us, we will always be the same. Now, now do you send this paper. So vastly different in tone from from this other... Uh, address that was supposedly delivered, you know, within a year or so of this. Um, we could get into things that are are kind of trouble, like the the deferential tone that, that people might think is, uh, is troubling in this particular set of addresses, but I more am interested in looking at how that sounds so much different from this thing that was allegedly delivered on Doc Maynard's office steps.
0: Yes, and several people that were supposedly there... Have no had no memory of such an address that was that long or impassioned. Uh, a local interpreter by the name of B.F. Shaw was there. He didn't remember it. David S. Maynard's widow Catherine was there and she had no recollection of a long impassioned speech. Uh, and there aren't any other contemporary records of Seattle delivering any speeches like it. Uh, You know, the newspaper in Olympia did not report any similar things. There's really no historical record of speeches of that nature being made by him.
2: Right. Uh, One of the primary chroniclers of the history of the Pacific Northwest from that time is a man named Clarence B. Bagley. He moved with his family to the Pacific Northwest when he was nine. And in addition to working a lot of other jobs from painting to running mines, he was a newspaper man and he became like a really... Prominent local historian. Uh, he was part of the founding of the Washington State Historical Society and he wrote two three volume histories one of Seattle and one of King County, which is the county that Seattle is in. Um, and both of these are still looked on as achievements in the documenting of the Pacific Northwest history. Um, he mentions more than once in his book that Chief Seattle and Doc Maynard were great friends. Um, and this speech supposedly happened on Doc Maynard's office steps. So it seems sort of odd to many historians today that the friendship between Seattle and, uh, and Doc Maynard would have been important enough to mention more than once in these histories, but that a speech of that length uh, with that tone would not be. Um, the last thing that kind of makes people question how authentic this recording from the Seattle Sunday Star is, uh, is that Smith said on his deathbed that the account was true and accurate, which seems a little strange to people that that would be what you'd spend your death your dying breath uh, reiterating that thing that I wrote in the Seattle Sunday, the Sunday Star was really a thing that happened.
0: Yes, especially since there's really no corroborating evidence for it. Right. It's just it's an as you said it's an odd last words scenario.
2: Yes.
3: Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution and the business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. There are certain decision makers that are restless. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. These Restless Ones are in pursuit of bigger, better, stronger. They seek new partners, new strategies, new processes. They pursue innovative platforms and solutions to propel their teams, businesses, and industries forward. In each episode, we'll learn more from the Restless Ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: The general consensus, I mean there's there's a surprising, maybe not surprising, there's a, there's a fair amount of debate about lots of aspects of this speech. And the, the general consensus is probably there was a an address of some sort, probably that happened when Chief Seattle was introduced to Governor Stevens. Uh, but that probably what we have today as a record of it is is not 100% what actually was said. It just It's not quite feasible for something to be reconstructed from notes 30 years after the fact to be 100% accurate to what had happened at the time.
0: But it's also important to take into account that we were still early on in our relationship, you know, in terms of Native Americans and the settlers and pioneers coming in. That relationship was still very early. It was. So the linguistic development between them, like learning each other's languages, was probably, you know, still in its infancy in many ways. So there were probably lots of nuances of language that were not clear to each side. So in terms of interpretation, there's some gray area. Right.
2: Right. It, it continues to be an important address. I think its importance... Some of it has to do with this whole backstory of understanding better uh, the context in which it may have happened and the relationships among the people involved. And a lot of that leads into the legacy of Chief Seattle and of this speech. Um, He had a pretty welcoming attitude toward settlers for his entire life, really, and especially his time as chief. And this didn't really make him popular with all of the rest of the Native American population, especially when he signed the Point Elliott Treaty in 1855. That treaty relinquished all of the tribal claims to most of the land in the area. What was supposed to happen was that the tribes would get access to hunting and fishing grounds, health care, education, and a reservation in exchange for doing all of that. Uh, That is, as we all know, not really what happened. And it took three years for the treaty to be ratified. And by the time it was ratified, it was very different from what people had originally agreed to. So there was a whole lot of unrest among the Native American people. Um, it's it's pretty telling when you look at historical accounts. Uh, a lot of the most mainstream ones talk about how Seattle was always a friend to the settlers, and he signed this, this treaty out of friendship. When you look at tribal records, the tone is more that he was afraid of a military conflict, that he knew that there was no way to win. So it's something that you can definitely look at from multiple angles, thinking about the relationships between these two people, which from this point was definitely not as positive as it had been in the very earliest days of the founding of Seattle.
0: Well, and the Native Americans did accuse Seattle of uh duplicity, and it really led to a lot of ongoing problems, uh, especially because of how the treaty actually played out once it was in effect. There were wars between the Native tribes and the settlers in the mid-1850s. Yeah, all,
2: all through those, lots of things, lots of areas of the Pacific Northwest where there were wars between the Native Americans and the settlers. And Seattle continued to remain an ally and tried to keep his tribes out of the battle Um And in some points, he would warn the American settlers of incoming attacks by other tribes. Uh, So he continued to stand by the white settlers, even as uh, a lot of the other Native tribes nearby and the ones that were uh, maybe not part of his his particular collection of tribes uh, really fought back against the settlers.
0: And after the town of Seattle was incorporated in eighteen sixty five ordinance actually forbade permanent Indian houses within the city limits,
2: right. So he had to give up his home,
0: yeah, which
2: yeah, he had they had already troubling. you know already figuratively there had been of of giving up of the homeland, and then he literally had to move out of the city. Uh, He moved to the Port Madison Suquamish Reservation and he died there after a brief illness in June of 1866 at about the age of 80. Since we're not completely sure exactly when he was born, that's an estimate. Uh, We know that his funeral involved both Catholic and Native rites, but there wasn't a record of it in the newspapers of the time, not really involved in any of the records of the local white settlers. Uh, to our knowledge, no leaders who had known him and who had helped found the city with his assistance attended his funeral. So by that point, by the point of his death, he was not well known in the area anymore, at least among the settlers. Uh, The Seattle Weekly Intelligencer printed an article about his funeral in 1870. So it was some years after it happened. Uh, And then the Seattle Sunday Star with his speech came out in 1887. Uh, he started to become a folk hero at that point, and the Ted Perry speech from the 70s made him into more of a household name.
0: And some history-minded people put up a marker in 1890 that read, Seattle, chief of the Suquamps and allied tribes, died June 7th, 1866, from friend of the whites, and for him the city of Seattle was named by its founders. The reverse side reads, baptismal name Noah Self, age probably 80 years. So there is a marker, but it didn't go up for.
2: It didn't go up until some people decided that there should be one. It was sort of marked with a rough. Yeah, 24 years later. Yes, it was roughly marked before that point. The Suquamish tribe opened a museum in Seattle in September of 2012, which is about the tribe's history and culture. Chief Seattle does play a small part in the overall museum, but he's not the center focus of it. Uh, the Seattle Times quotes the museum director as saying, I think the tribe is consciously trying to move away from Chief Seattle being the beginning, middle, and end of the tribe. It's in no way a re- reflection of less esteem or less respect. It was not there yet the last time I was
0: in Seattle. Nope. Now I want to go. Either It's quite recent. Uh, so, yeah, I want to go too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's It's so interesting to see how... Uh, history treats him right you know in terms of uh him having it once been i mean i know for me growing up in the 70s in just outside of seattle there was lots of chief seattle talk so it's very interesting now to know that in the museum at least his role is played down a little bit
2: right well and I, i can imagine it being since the city was named after him uh, growing up in that area growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I think the people's exposure to Chief Seattle and who he was and uh, what his legacy was and, and what the Native Americans in the area are like is probably vastly different from much of the rest of the United States. I would imagine, yes. Yes.
0: Having not grown up in the rest of no. the United States to compare, I do not know. Well, and I do. I um,
2: would guess. I, I love Seattle. I think it's an awesome, beautiful part of the world. and. I am glad that we have the records that we do have of what the settlement there was like. It is as many parts of American history are when it comes to the relationship between settlers and Native Americans is very distressing. Um, Especially when you consider that after the time period that we've talked about, there were some pretty orchestrated efforts by the government to try to basically breed out, in quotes, uh, native Americans, that was, like, sending Native American children to boarding schools so that they wouldn't be exposed to their Native culture, uh, that type of thing. So the fact that the Suquamish tribe has been able to survive in the face of all that is is noted as an achievement, that uh, there are still 950 members after all of that. Indeed. I feel like we're ending on a sad note. I know. I'm trying to think of a way to make it happy, but...
0: There's a new museum.
2: There is a new museum. And the pictures of it look beautiful.
0: Yeah, gorgeous. They look
2: really beautiful and like a a really wonderful place to go and learn more about cultural history of that part. Uh, Anytime you travel in the Pacific Northwest, the Native American influence is so visible in a lot of places. And so uh, being able to see where that all comes from instead of it just being sort of the facade stuck on the building, Mm -hmm. I think is uh, a wonderful thing to be able to do. Yes.
0: Maybe we should have a pilgrimage. Let's do. Let's have a history field trip. We can visit my brother. I also have a brother and a sister there. So we're covered. Yes.
2: Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020, and to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class.
1: Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends, some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.